is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters. I work at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm going to be the host for these discussions. I want to let you know that the link to this discussion will not change after today. So if you found us through this Zoom link, you can find us here using the same link every weekday. And please help spread the word. Please also send me suggestions for guests and for future topics. So just a note about tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to speak with Dr. Sarah DeYoung. She's a researcher at a professor at the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. That's the oldest disaster research center in the United States. She's an expert in applied social and community psychology, and I'm going to be talking with Sarah about the psychology of evacuation and sheltering, as well as vulnerable populations in disaster. We're going to talk about pets and the psychology of disaster. It'll be a really interesting conversation. In the second half of our hour today, I'm going to be joined by Kim Fortune, a professor of anthropology at the University of California in Irvine. Kim is an expert on environmental risk and disaster and the author of Advocacy After Bhopal, Environmentalism, Disaster, New World Orders. So I'll be talking to Kim about 5.30. Today, first, we're going to hear from Robinson Meyer. Rob's a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers technology and climate change. Hi, Rob. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Uh, Rob, you and Alexis Madrigal broke a pretty amazing story on March 6th, which now seems about a year ago, uh, about the CDC and the lack of COVID-19 testing in the United States. Uh, just a few days ago on March 13th, you reported, I'm just going to give a brief quote in a follow-up story, that in many states, symptomatic patients still cannot get tested for the coronavirus unless they meet certain limited criteria, even if their doctor wants to test them. In at least 13 states, the rules effectively discourage doctors from testing patients who have no ties to existing cases, exactly the kind of community case, again from your reporting, that would signal that the pandemic has reached a dangerous new stage in a city or region and that the virus is now spreading among strangers. That's some stunning uh, reporting, and I wonder if you can say more about that or, or anything new you can bring us up to date on. Um, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, I also uh, have been, my my uh, headphones are repeatedly linking and then delinking to my laptop. So we'll see what my, my audio quality may change dramatically through the call. Um, yeah, and, and first of all, I just want to think, are we, are we on background? Are we... Um, we can... Cool, so... We can make that clear to everybody that Rob's here basically on background, so please don't quote him for attribution in any of your own any of your own writing. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk to any researchers. In fact, I'd say if if what I anything I talk about, um, I'm looking at the attendees list, which is awesome. Um, if anything that I talk about is uh, of interest to you, um, or you have a thought, or you have uh, something you want to share um, or you just want to be in touch uh, my email address is rob rob at the atlantic.com i'm definitely happy to talk to anyone um, for research or anything it's just will make me feel um, uh, uh, just a little more free um, one is never truly off the record <laughs> If it's being recorded and you're on the internet talking to strangers, but it is helpful 
uh, to just have the, the assurance of a background. So you're welcome to use the information that I say, um, but, but if you could not cite it to me, uh, that would be great. Um, and I will assume, given everyone, and if that is not an acceptable arrangement, then leave the Zoom call now because your continued participation equals your agreement. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I, I have been reporting for the past few weeks, um, I guess now, on the, on, on this, on the COVID testing in the US. Um, it's kind of funny, I'm not a public health reporter. I'm not a health reporter even. Um, I am a science reporter sometimes. Uh, I would say I'm mostly a climate reporter um, and energy. I, in some ways the story <laughs> winds up mirroring those topics uh, relatively well um, because it is this interesting mix of, of kind of, you know, immutable material facts that are discoverable um, at least immutable and material within the context of, of, of what we care about as people and, and citizens, uh, within the context of politics and, and decision-making, um, and research that's coming out and how you bring that in decision anyway. Um, and, and honestly, I started reporting on this beat because, um, I, just was not, I, 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 it felt like there was some basic disconnect between what I was experiencing and what seemed to be happening in the world. In that what I was experiencing was that if you looked at kind of all the, you know, sources who I thought were trustworthy, if you looked at the experience in Wuhan, um, at that point less so in Italy, um, though, though still somewhat there, it was clear that there was this point where like there was uh, it was clear that the virus would be spreading um, and yet uh, but that information hadn't filtered through yet uh, and and where the virus was spreading but um, either there, there was or wasn't a like a vigorous policy response. And if there wasn't a vigorous policy was response, it was a big problem. Um, and I think it's a little, uh, I, I actually have had, hadn't thought about this until I did this call, but you know, there was a week where like, it was clear the virus was going to be bad, that it, we were, um, the first confirmed community case was late February. I guess my story was March 5th, which was a Friday. Mm -hmm. So it was nearly a week and a half after the first community case. And so there was, which I, I think, um, maybe my story was a Thursday, um, but uh, I'm just looking at the calendar. There was this period where it was clear like the virus was spreading and Occasionally you'd get these reports of positive tests, but like no one was really, it just didn't, and, and the market by that point was like starting to shit itself, but like it, it, it just something seemed wrong. <laughs> and it was clear that like things could go bad. Um, and that the administration was not really responding to this. Um, 
it, by this point, it had stopped reporting the number of negative tests. It was clear that testing was gonna was a big issue, um, and there was really no assess like because the CDC had stopped putting those numbers together. Um, there was no other state to state to go on. And in fact, basically like the testing had become controversial in the news. Then the CDC pulled down numbers. And then my story came out the following Thursday or Friday. And so what I did with my reporting partner, Alexis Madrigal, uh, I basically called him at, <laughs> while I was walking home one night, feeling like I was out of my mind and was like, ah, like if like it is, um, you know, I, I don't know whether this is, uh, I hope this doesn't sound immodest to say, cause this isn't how it felt, but it was just like, like we were both friends. This is how we were, we've been friends for a while and, it, and we were both kind of losing our minds over this. And I was like, okay, if we were US Army Corps reporters, and we were a week before Katrina or something, or, you know, if like, what would we do? Like, this is the, we, we have, you know, you've got to find some kind of way in. Um, and so what we decided was, I mean, what I kind of pitched him on doing was basically emailing um, that we split up the state health departments, which were doing this reporting and which some of them, when it, when we started looking, had started kind of posting the data to their website and some hadn't. Uh, and we we tabulated them, uh, and and we basically just emailed every every state and and put the numbers together. And then it was kind of only it took twenty four hours, but like it, within a day later, we were able to kind of go, oh well, actually, not only is this a useful set of just what the states are doing, because at first our idea was just that we were going to look for transparency, like we were going to just try to give people a sense of like how their state was responding. And then eventually realized, oh, actually we're sitting on data that no one else has. Um, and that we could kind of use, the, like add the numbers together and get the best assessment that existed anywhere. Um, and at that point, you know, we rushed pretty hard. The follow-up story, uh, there have been two at this point. One was, it, it turned out that Alexis's freshman year roommate <laughs> was actually organizing a different volunteer-led effort um, with a lot of data scientists, and they were able to unify those streams. Um, and that lives now at the COVID tracker uh, tracking project, which is at covidtracker.com that we both retain an affiliation with, and Alexis is running on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, um, uh, but which is also volunteer run. Um, the follow-up story, which is basically that you know, there are 13 states, uh, there are at least 13 states in the country, and I think a lot of counties and hospitals um, where the rules, the, the lack of testing supplies has led the states to either follow CDC guidelines or implement a, a stricter version of CDC guidelines that makes it impossible to detect community transmission, uh, basically until it reaches a nursing home or assisted living facility. And so in uh, there are at least 13 states where um, as of last week, you could only get a test if you had been abroad. Eventually some of the states were changing so that if you had been to Seattle, you could maybe get a test. 
if you had, uh, of course, also all of this is you're, you're quite symptomatic. You're symptomatic to go to a place where they have tests. And then, so if you're symptomatic and you've been abroad, uh, you had a confirmed lab contact, you had a confirmed contact with a lab confirmed COVID case, or you were living in a nursing home or assisted living facility, you were hospitalized with a severe respiratory distress and you were negative on every other test. Um, could you could you get a test? And, and it, I mean, it, it was just like kind of, it's like, a, a, I totally understand, I'm not an expert. I've talked to epidemiologists about it. They were pretty shocked. Um, mm. I think it was probably a good framework maybe three weeks ago for many places when you were trying to contact contact trace. What it means now is that there are entire lines of contacts um, who don't have that, uh, who, who aren't just not being, like they're, they're never getting caught by the site, by, by our testing. And what that means is we don't detect a local outbreak until it, until it hits a nursing home basically, which, which is like really um, horrific. Uh, I also reported a number of cases in that story of doctors because they could not prove that they had, these are like hospitalists who are working in frontline uh, places and because they couldn't prove that they had um, a, a contact with a lab positive case, they could not get tested even when they were symptomatic. Let me ask you a follow-up here because I, there's, I've heard two different um, narratives. One has to do, for a while it seemed like the narrative was there aren't enough test kits in the United States to get this done. So it was a sort of a scarcity issue. But your reporting also indicates that it's, it's not just that. It's also about, um, maybe it's about protocol. It's also like, who should be tested? I need to know, I need to understand better maybe it's both, exactly why the tests are not being conducted. So that's one issue. And then the other, which you've talked about, is the reporting of the tests. So we have a lot to sort out here. And, and I think- yeah, exactly. So, so in many cases, the state, like states and, and hospitals um, and counties are rationing precisely because they have so few tests. And at this point, uh, hints, I would say some facilities are, it's not even the testing kits themselves that are the, what they're lacking. Um, it's that they don't have enough reagents, which is where you, which is to my understanding, the material you use to separate the viral RNA from the rest of the sample. Um, uh, so so it, is, it is often the scarcity that's driving these rationing decisions. And many hospitals have a policy right now where, for instance, it's like much harder to test someone for COVID than it is for any of the other respiratory viruses, which I think suggests that it is a scarcity issue. So when we talked the other day um, and I asked you how you thought the health system was doing in terms of the governance of our health system. So the different layers of our bureaucracy, and this is to the issue around the reporting. And you said something that's been stuck in my head ever since then, which is you're concerned about our technocrats. You worry um, about how 
well people are understanding. You know, so CDC is one thing, but CDC is, uh, I mean, we've got a very complicated federal system of government, which includes our health system. Can you say a little bit more about like, how you think this is working, not just out of Washington, but spreading all across the, the health system, particularly on this sort of governance issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say that I'm an expert here. Um, uh, but I would say that, you know, what has been striking, just watching the administration's response and, and how the CDC has responded, um, excuse me, is, and this is something I've noticed in climate reporting too, is there are, of course, these bureaucratic, bright, there, are, there are bright spots, right? And so um, there are hospitals that are in the federal uh, system. Uh, and again, if you've joined in the last 10 minutes, right now we're on background, so I would ask that anything that, you, that I say not be quoted to me publicly. Um, there are hospitals in the federal system that basically invented their own tests and use them. Um, on the other hand, I would say that like, if you look at the slow, the, the sluggish federal response, um, it is not only a question of spending, uh, it is partly a question of administration. <laughs> um, and it's partly a question of when, you know, are, are bureaucrats and technocrats kind of agile enough and thoughtful enough that they know when the process is crucial and that they also know when they need to be circumventing process as much as possible. And I think what a lot of the, uh, to a degree that's so little unclear to me from the reporting, but I would say that I'm about a day behind the reporting because I've been doing different reporting. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a little unclear to me how much, obviously this was administered very poorly the whole month of February seems like it was administered dismally. The question is, was it also on top of the the poor administration on the, at the executive level? Um, and, you know, poorly staffed. Um, right. Yeah. So uh, I want to let everybody know, if you have a question for Rob, you can just put it in the chat and I'll uh, get to those questions in a second. I want to um, ask you one more question, Rob, and we have about 10 more minutes with you, I think. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry that I've been such a, such a short um, uh, This time of day is the worst time for anybody to try to interview a journalist. I know that. <laughs> I used to work at the New York Times and I know this time of day. So, um, but I want to, I do want to ask you just if you wouldn't, just for a minute or two, reflect a little bit about being a journalist at this moment. I mean, there have been cases confirmed at Vox, at NBC. I'm sure many other news outlets have literally cases in the building. Um, and we're doing, you know, social distancing, which I'm, you know, there's a sense of the journalist is always sort of out there. If you're out there reporting, you're social distancing from your colleagues, but you're not social distancing from the story. You've got to be in the story. And now we're telling you, you've got to lock down and do this. Could you just reflect a little bit about what it's like to be a journalist at this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 my, my kind of ludicrous thing I would say is that the time where I was most like, oh boy, I'm really worried about this is I, I appeared on television related to this story and you go to the green room and you go to the studio, it's a very silly process. And there was like someone there who had a dry cough and I was like, Ugh. Um, 
as a journalist, yes. Um, I, it, it, there, there's a certain amount to which I'm uh, not able to do in-person reporting right now. Um, I have asthma, so I'm being pretty, being pretty careful. Um, I know other news organizations are briefing their staff on, on, you know, for instance, if you go and you want to do reporting, maintain a distance of six feet and do it outside, you know, um, if this is not with a healthcare professional, for instance. Um, what I would say the bigger, almost my like bigger reflection on being a journalist right now is like, um, uh, there's that onion headline um, from the 2000s. Uh, I think, uh, you know, fuck everything, we're doing five blades. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> right now it does, we are doing a public health crisis and a financial crisis and emergency federal legislation at the same time. Um, we're doing that in an environment where it's extremely, there, there are core core questions about what's happening in the country right now for which there's zero good information. Um, basically in every sector, you know, like economists are looking at movie tickets to figure out who the, to figure out the, the unemployment rate. So, so that I would say has been, for me, who is a journalist who already is mostly doing a lot of work by phone and stuff, um, been the struggle is like, how do you even convey and uh, ignorance. How do you convey not things that we don't know to readers? Um, and that's that's something we're thinking about doing. Actually, in fact, that's something that I will be uh, doing at the meeting that I'm about to go to. I, I think that actually could be. And you gave us very kindly your email address. And I think that issue um, of conveying the known, but also what's not known, is something where this research community might be useful to you. I mean, I think that building this relationship is, is quite good because that's something we all think a lot about in our own, in our own work. You know, disasters yeah. are not just what's known. Disasters are often known later by what we didn't know, the questions yeah. we didn't know to ask or the data we didn't know to collect. Yeah. I want to get to a question here from Leo because it's a question I share and you may have some insight. This is a question um, particularly around testing for non-U.S. citizens and undocumented folks. Have you heard anything you can share with us about that? I haven't. In fact, I uh, and I will answer this, and then maybe I'll just run through the F, the questions that are in the chat. Sure, sure. Yeah, you go ahead. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I. So I have to say, I really don't know. Um, um, and and again, I'm not a public health or healthcare worker, a healthcare journalist, and so even how some of these um, you know, things normally happen in processes and how they vary state by state, which I know they can do, I think they can do profoundly. I, I would, I would say that I doubt there's good data out there right now because I like can see what the data is from being reported by states and it's, it's essentially positives, negatives. Some states don't even give you negatives. And, and number of tests total, and some states also don't give you number of tests total. Uh, it, it's even unclear to me, for instance, what this looks like, let's say, on the, on the other side of the, you know, wealth power spectrum. So every member of the, you know, Utah Jazz was tested in Oklahoma last week. 
I have not been able to establish whether those tests numbers are showing up in the Oklahoma public health lab data or whether that was like a private company that isn't reporting. Um, I'm just going to quickly run through sure. uh, the governance between the federal government and state government. How much of an authority can the states have in times of crisis or how much can states go against federal rules? Um, I don't know that's a federalism question that I'm not fully and like a Stafford Act question that I don't fully know. Um, my observation has been that at, at least at the high level, the White House has not been providing um, clear guidance about how it's going to be apportioning resources. So for, I mean, as, as everyone may have seen, Trump yesterday was like, go try to get your own ventilators if you can, um, which is not the benefit of a centralized response. And I would add, by the way, that like what has characterized this whole process to me is uh, the U.S. not benefiting from the <laughs> from the notional benefits of its um, of its centralized systems. I mean, the, what we are doing at COVID Tracker should be something that the CDC is doing. They already track uh, they already track influenza tests, not just influenza-like illness, but actual test results from 2,600 healthcare providers across the country every week. Now we're doing it every day from 50 states, um, but that capacity is not that different. And, and they're able to mandate a level of transparency in a way that we have to beg for. So in many cases, the, the story here is about us really not benefiting as Americans uh, or as US residents, um, you know, at least the national stories from institutions. Uh, Ryan, since you're a climate reporter, what do you think the impact will be of this on climate change? Um, I'm very, I think it's way too early to know. Um, a short-term emissions reduction, but that is explicitly because carbon emissions are so coupled to economic activity right now. Um, China has a way of when it needs to stimulate its economy, stimulating the heavy industries, which are also the dirtiest. So that would be bad. Um, and so far, I have not seen much from the US Congress, um, including the Democrats, that seems poised to use the stimulus package to do kind of long-term economic planning around uh, public transit or EVs or while we're bailing out the airlines, let's get a carbon tax in there. Um, what role do should academic researchers play in all of this, particularly in the social sciences? Um, sorry that I'm just like running through these so quickly. <laughs> um, uh, um, I, 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 I don't know. What I would say is, as a re as a reporter, um, understanding precedents and where they fail is always useful. Um, understanding communication. I mean, from from my climate reporting, I know that the way the National Weather Service and NOAA has changed how it communicates hazards to like natural hazards to uh, data consumers um, in just the past five years, basically, or 10 years because of what they perceived as their huge failure in communicating that after, uh, before the 
super tornado cluster a few years ago. Um, and, and that that research hasn't seemed to pan over into the CDC yet. So if there's a big hurricane coming, um, the National Weather Service at this point, and you, you can see, I mean, you can see it when in hurricane, they're like, you will die if you stay here. Like you, and they will say that very explicitly. Yeah. Uh, you not to so stay life-threatening. Yeah. Um, they say, so I have not seen that from the CDC in the same way. I, you know, as a, as a journalist, uh, I always like when academics write in, um, in, in uh, something closer to a language that like is reproducible in commercial ways. I think that's like a really good skill. Um, and I would say like, actually I have an answer. Uh, what it is the, what everyone is looking for here, <laughs> I think to some degree, at least in journalism world, um, but I think like also brought more broadly are, I, I know of this term from I first heard of this term from like the field of nursing. I don't know if that's actually true or not. It's like middle theories, a theory that's not just like high, high and abstract, uh, nor is it like about a specific thing. The example I always heard was that there's this theory in nursing about how like the, a nurse should do things that a patient should take care of the patient in the way the patient would take care of themselves if they could, but they can at that moment. Um, you can see places where that theory is wrong. Uh, but you can also see how there are actions that follow from that idea that like lead to, uh, lead to action in, in useful ways and can help people thinking through the problem in new ways. That's always the best thing to hear from academics. Uh, the parallels between the crisis and climate reporting that I'm gonna head out. Um, uh, well, I'd say there's a common place in a lot of climate reporting that if climate change was happening faster and if it was happening to wealthy white people, then we do something about it. Yeah. Uh, I think this crisis has been an interesting juxtaposition to that. Um, uh, I, I would say broadly, what mostly the biggest thing that I've been struck by so far is especially when the testing data was unclear, but people weren't acting. I mean, the testing data is still unclear, but basically we have decided to act. And there was a period where the testing data was unclear and we, people weren't acting. And it was all about risk management under uncertainty. <laughs> and I just could not help but think of climate constantly. Because in climate, I, I, mean, I mean, a lot of median climate outcomes will be really bad, but I think what motivates me as, as being particularly scary are these tail risk outcomes. And you really, there's many cases where society, I mean, we're doing this right now, we're, we're making huge decisions that are very expensive because we wanna just eliminate tail risk outcomes because they are so bad when they happen. And, and that's something we're doing right now here, you know, with this epidemic, I think, and we're not doing with um, climate change. Uh, so that was a lot of questions very quickly, but I hope that was helpful. Very and, and interesting and generative for, for folks. And thank you all for the work that you're doing. Thanks, Rob. I hope we get you back at some point. In the you're next muted, time. I think, Scott. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Oh, I can't hear you. Um, okay. Sorry, yeah. I can hear you now. Thank okay. you. Thanks, Rob. And now you'll switch to Kim. Okay, bye. I hope to get you back. Thanks. Yep, I'd love to come back. Bye. Okay, great.
we're gonna um, now pick up with uh, Kim Fortune. Hi, Kim. Hi. And I wanted to uh, introduce you at the top, but just briefly introduce you again. This is Kim Fortune, Professor of Anthropology at UC Irvine. And uh, Kim is an expert in environmental risk and disasters. And I wanted to just uh, thank you for joining us and, and particularly coming right off of that really um, robust and quick conversation with Rob Meyer. What are your takeaways just from the way he was talking about the tests, the way he was talking about the health system? Um, what's the, what are the headlines coming out of that discussion for you? Well, my thoughts often go to the question of what kind of capacity do we need to be building in our own communities to respond to these kinds of disasters? Because as academics, uh, we're usually on a different timeline. We work slowly, um, not, we're not in rapid response mode. And, and so some of the comments he made at the end about uh, the roles that he appreciates academic researchers playing, I thought were um, an important jumping off point. And I'll just replay them so that uh, people can reconsider them. Uh, one is he said that um, academics can play an important role um, understanding and identifying evolving communication channels and pathways and thinking comparatively about that. For example, bringing into the discussion what's happened in the weather community uh, and bringing that into the CDC's world, for example. Uh, another really crisp point he made was the importance of what he called middle theory. So ways of thinking about problems that aren't fully generalizable and yet good to think with across cases. So it is a kind of analogic thinking. It's kind of like this, and this gives you some traction as things um, evolve. Um, and th there's other things that I, I think this uh, discussion could um, bring us back to a kind of long list of roles that we could play. And I think it's an interesting to think about the critical role that journalists play and how that's both distinctive and yet uh, a companion species with academic researchers. So the, what you just pointed out, striking to me that in the disaster research world, there are, are in some quarters people doing um, very long, you know, data set, slow disaster work, Anthropocene work, where they're investigating things that are of 400 years in the making. And then there's other folks like people maybe who do rapid response work in disaster sociology that are literally right now trying to figure out how to put their questionnaires together to do tele-interviews. It's a very big tent. Um, in terms of building a research community. I wonder, can you generalize a, a, a little bit right now, just thinking about the kind of skills in this moment that we need more of, the kinds of um, expertises that we need more of, right? Just from what you're observing with COVID, where are we weak? Like, where do we need to build up? Is it a working across time scale issue? Is it um, being able to communicate more to practitioners? Where are you seeing the, the weaknesses areas for us to grow? I think part of it is all of us feeling um, um, ready and obligated to work outside of our uh, specialized area of expertise. Um, and I'll just remind you that when we first began working together, it was in the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster, and neither of us were radiation 
experts, but we were brought in as comparative disaster scholars. And so the role of people with very specialized expertise, but how it can be extended to be a resource uh, as disasters unfold, I think that it takes a very different kind of enculturation than the standard make academic, and certainly a capacity to very quickly link together and work is the way that you've done in pulling this set of calls together. Let me ask you a little bit more about that because you and I were also at a setting a few years ago where we were invited to come and talk to um, meteorologists, and particularly who were focused on the problem of warning for tornadoes. And um, that was an interesting moment because I think what they thought they were inviting were maybe specialists in that very particular area of sociology or risk communication, people who communicate risk about tornado. Um, what they got was something a little different because you work across multiple hazards. So can you say a little bit more about that as a skill set? Because I think that's, you know, in some ways our disciplines force us into often quite specific expertises, but you're talking about something different, this ability to work across different kinds of disasters and hazards. That It seems, I think, a little counterintuitive sometimes to practitioners and policymakers. They want the expert on the pandemic, but maybe you're suggesting something a little different from that. Well, I think partly because knowledge is such a problem in disasters, uh, partly because of cover-ups, partly because of failures of political will, and partly because things are just genuinely complicated. Uh, it's important to have comparative perspective because the thing itself is in many ways simply unknowable. And so you know kind of coming in sideways. And I think this is especially the case when you've got scrambled airways because of commercial interests or political division where there's almost a, a noise generation. Um, and so the role of academic researchers to one, constantly draw in new forms of expertise into the analysis, whether it's on the pandemic, you know, whether it's social health, et cetera, but also this comparative and historical insight. And, and then what you get from that is real divergence of interpretation of what's going on. And I think there's the easy go-to to think that that divergence is always an error rather than uh, part of the way robust knowledge works when you've got complex phenomena, especially changing rapidly over time. And so the way that academics can help turn very diverse interpretations and, and data set data on a phenomena into a resource, into a, instead of only as a problem. And I mean, to be clear, sometimes it is a problem because people are lying, uh, but there's also just um, uh, productive interpretive differences. Mm. The, I want to just zoom in on this particular, this moment we're in right now. Um, what kind of networks do you think we need to be building literally right now as this is unfolding? What kind of data, I mean, even if, if you're willing to say, like, what are you reading right now? What are you collecting right now around this pandemic um, 
that we, and I think that's a question that maybe we can bring in other people around, you know, what are people been attentive to what sources, what data points, what kind of questions are they asking? I mean, we're framing these, we're consuming this information in real time. And yet we're also always filtering out the points that we think we're going to need later to address the questions that are urgent to us. Can you say a little bit about your own experience on that right now? Yeah. So one of, one of the things that I'm listening for, and I hope other people with kind of kindred expertise is the discursive patterns that are emerging um, and conflicts within them. So for example, on the call yesterday, uh, we, we heard uh, hints of um, reliance on, on different interpretations of um, the extent to which people should be sheltering in place and isolating. Uh, and interestingly, based on, um, there was a, a, a dyad set up between, you know, are you, are you using modeled data? Are you, do you have a public health perspective? And so the, it's probably very honest differences over to what extent isolation is a key part of going forward. But I think we need to have an ear for what those differences are so that as discourses settle down into one way of reading the situation, we can help shake it up again. Because what we've learned in disaster across disaster is as discursive framing settles down, uh, you get exclusions, I mean, inevitably. And so, and, it, and that's not necessarily because of bad politics, it's just, and so the role of academics to, to identify discursive patternings and open it up to new directions, I think is really critical. A, a second part of that is the way a, a discourse formation is patterned locates responsibility and possible remedy at different scales and points of the system. Um, and often taking some things beyond accountability and we can kind of drag them back on. But I think it's also our, um, we can help identify or multiply the small pressure points where the system is subject to change and good management. One of the things that is already, uh, it was even a, it was a headline on the Times already that the Trump administration was itself rewriting the, its history of its own response to the pandemic. And I haven't even had time to, to look at that yet, but I mean, you sort of imagine that overlay with what, you know, the kind of reporting Rob Meyer's doing where he's talking about gaps in testing, but gaps down to the state level of reporting. So part of this is just following the trail of knowledge formation, what data is out there what I'm always listening for and watching for is how these experts are already framing the, the future history of their present action. And I'm not surprised to see the administration already, already doing that. Um, Trump even himself framing this as a war um, and sort of invoking the sort of all out American response and framing it in, in that way, rather than, I mean, he frames it many different ways, but I'll be looking to see how his administration um, does that and also framing it primarily now as an economic struggle. This seems to be the direction the administration wants to move at this, at this point. So those discourses, when you have one actor, one person in some cases, or one presidential administration that finds itself in a discursive dis argument with itself in a short mm -hmm. period of time, I think that's also really, that's something I'm always 
listening for. I have a couple other questions for you, Kim, but I want to get to um, chat here. Can you see the Can you see the chat? Yeah. Can you take Amy Slayton's question there, given the set of scholarly dispositions? I think that's a really important part of our discussion. I'll read it. Um, do anthropology or STS folks have a particular role to play in framing questions that technoscience is not asking? Is that an analytical contribution worth naming or highlighting as the disaster unfolds? Absolutely, I think the answer is yes, and but there's a lot of yeses. Uh, one is that there's of course sociocultural variables in that constitute vulnerability, care, who doesn't, et cetera. Um, there's also very, very important as disasters unfold is analyzing the thought styles of the experts that are charged with characterizing the disasters. And so it's almost as though social scientists and humanities scholars uh, give techno-scientific actors heighten their reflective capacity. And it's, it doesn't mean that they don't have it themselves, but the reminding them of the historical shaping of their own expertise and that as expertise by its very definition is a very particular and narrow way of seeing the world. That's what expertise is. And I think that we, humanities and social science scholars can kind of bring that to mind in a in a way that allows expertise to reinvent itself as is often needed in disaster context. All right, thank you for that. Let me, um, there's another couple of questions coming in. I wanna, I wanna ask one though in between, which is around the, um, the disaster research, the, particularly the disaster STS community that you've been instrumental in trying to bring together. Um, a big, one of the major ambitions is to make it a truly transnational research community. This is a transnational pandemic, literally, by definition. Um, what do we need to be doing to take this moment to actually bring this research community into a much more sort of interactive transnational group? Well, it's, it's something that I think we've talked about since at least Fukushima, if not Hurricane Katrina, and it, it's hard to build and we have to technically infrastructure it as well as change our practices. Um, two examples that are kind of beacons for me is after the earthquake in Haiti in I think 2010, um, the way an international community of map makers came together to reinvent way making information for first responders on the ground. So they were creating local knowledge from afar and sending it to the island. In the wake of the big Nepal earthquake, there was a community of people that mobilized to watch the satellite data so that they could identify where there would likely be landslides mm -hmm. in, in, in the mountains. And I think we need to ask, like, what's the equivalent for us? What kind of watching and feed in do we need uh, to be doing? And so this attentiveness to the discursive patternings, the, uh, the limits and the um, innovation of expertise, I think we need to, that's something that can only be done collectively because it's so multidimensional. And a big challenge going forward is to 
how to feed those interpretations back into the dis very discursive formations that we're studying. So the point is not to take them down, but to uh, refresh them so that they can better attend to the disaster going forward. And I think we don't yet have those kinds of pathways, uh, good, well-built pathways. I think you're exceptionally good at feeding them into the Twitter sphere, for example. The, Jason Ludwig is asking about, um, he wanted to bring us back to this question that, uh, to Rob about climate and thinking about covering the pandemic and covering climate change. And Jason would like for us to think about um, how this pandemic complicates what we understand about the Anthropocene. Can you, you want to take some uh, at least first pass at this idea of what, you know, we've been talking a lot about the Anthropocene and and climate change in the last couple of years um, in, you know, the Anthropocene as a global phenomena that's experienced locally in a sort of quotidian Anthropocene way. What do we do with the pandemic in this, in this context? Well, I, I woke up this morning worried that we're going to have an, a nuclear disaster in, in South Texas in the middle of this. And so, because I, the, the need to be, uh, prepared for what the disaster research community calls combination disasters or true catastrophe, um, I think is um, incumbent on us because all of these disasters are uh, caused and certainly exacerbated by tightly coupled systems of biological systems, transportation systems, social systems, and so the, the way that one disaster will compound with the, another is kind of built in. And we know from old line disaster theory that those kinds of couplings create phenomena that are beyond the apprehension of established expertise. And so with climate change, we've thought of it as slow disaster that can be turned fast when you have a hurricane, for example, like Hurricane Harvey and the chemical industry on the Gulf Coast. Coast, coast, coast. And I think that what, think this, that what this, I'm getting some I'm getting feedback. Some feedback. Um, um, you sound fine. Okay, what, okay, the, what, what, the, what, what this disaster, disaster. Okay, my headphones off. What this disaster does is throws us back on a fast disaster time and it's going to be very easy to um, lose, uh, to, to shift our attention from the slower disasters of a, a, a health system way below capacity for even routine operations, uh, clean water supply, all of the basic infrastructure that is um, often at the, the, has been at the center of the concern before things start blowing up, so to speak. And in essence, things have blown up for us right here. Um, and we it, it, we have to respond to the explosiveness of this pandemic, you know, all kind of all eyes on it. On the other hand, that realizing that fast disaster always has second and third waves and turns into slow disaster. And so knowing that this is not something that will end in in the summer or even next fall, but that, you know, that we need to think in terms of kind of the phases and the long durée of um, from where we stand now. Do you know something specific about, I, maybe I missed what happened in South Texas? You said you woke up worried about a nuclear disaster in well, South Texas, or you just wake up some days afraid of that? No, I just started worrying about it. The system is clearly so overextended now 
what yeah. in the world would happen if we had, and we're likely to have, um, you know, uh, upsets on top of the pandemic. And part of this is coordinational, um, you know, where the health departments barely talk to departments of the environment, much less the transportation department, much. And, and that, that is, um, I mean, it is our job as academic researchers to call out that coordinational incapacity because as we've seen again and again in disaster research, acting as though it just came out of the blue, uh, there's just no historical uh, grounding to that kind of claim. Um, first of all, I mean, I think it's a really great set of observations that, that if you go looking for the, and this is, I think, one of the challenges with disaster research, well, we go looking for the disaster. Well, you're not going to find it. It's an interlinked set of privations. It's an interlinked set of happenings that don't match up very well. It's very hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that you're studying. It comes back to your sort of discursive analysis point. And it's really important that we keep an eye on what experts themselves say is the disaster here. It's been very easy, I think, up to this point in the discourse to say, well, the disaster was a disaster of presidential leadership and it was about test kits and about not knowing exactly the scale. But, you know, some of what we're seeing um, here connects, I think, very well um, to Cold War and even post 9-11 moments where emergency managers were following the protocols that they're given that tell us that no matter what the disaster is in something like this, you need to be prepared with a food and water supply food, water, and medicine supply. And this kind of advice was given again. And the reality is for a large percentage and ever-growing percentage of Americans, the idea that you just truck over to the grocery store and load up for two weeks to prepare in your private bunker is absolute fantastical thinking. You think about the homelessness problem in the East Coast and the West Coast. We think about people with special needs and vulnerabilities, undocumented, and then people who just don't have an extra 100 bucks in the bank account to go drop it on food. And, and so the, the emergency management response, and not faulting just them, but, you know, that, that's been the, their advice to us. Well, that advice doesn't hold for a large percentage of the population if you think about the disaster as poverty or a failed health system. And that's what's, when you talk about coupled disasters or a disaster coupling and making something new, I think that's where we're headed. One quick final point to that, and I think we have a couple of other questions here to get to um, in the remaining time. You woke up worrying about the nuclear disaster. I woke up worrying about the fact that the first day of hurricane season is just around the corner. And so emergency management systems and health systems that are already stressed to the max are gonna be double tasked with that and with what's looking like it's already gonna be a bad fire season too. We have to be able to think about all of these things in combination, not as individual disaster vectors, but part of a bigger system um, of risk, basically. So on that cheerful note, maybe I should, we should turn over. I think we've got a question here from... Um, I, I've just read the, I think it's the last one on mine from Evan Hepler-Smith and ask yeah. about really how we um, configure the it of disaster and factors that are often considered compounding factors like comorbidities, air pollution, how air pollution will exacerbate uh, COVID-19, and what's the analytic risk and advantage of that configuration. 
And I think one thing that we've learned in the disaster literature and also like Evan has documented it in his historical work uh, on chemistry is that there is a recurrent and stubborn essentialism in the way we characterize problems where, you know, that even if the problem is the factory, uh, the, the fact that the factory blows up and trespasses its bounds. And so the, uh, the excess of um, the object. And so, and this is where sometimes it's operationally important to identify a problem. And that's certainly something you and I have learned from the first responders. I mean, they, they need something to go do. Um, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that they're not fully capable of pulling back and reconsidering the object of their intervention um, you know, when they're at rest after a day on the ground. And so, and again, that's what we can help with. It's like reminding people that just shifting a bit how you think about the problem can open up new insights into the problem and new pathways of, of remedy. And so that old classic, you know, teaching about anti-essentialism, which doesn't seem very applied, actually has incredible applied uh, uh, potentiality. I think we will stop there. We're up on time. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining this discussion. And I hope we can get you back into this intermittently as we go along with these COVID calls. Everybody, please join us tomorrow at five o'clock Eastern time. I'll be interviewing Sarah DeYoung talking about vulnerable populations and the psychology of disaster. And she's an expert um, in uh, infant feeding. She's an expert in uh, uh, evacuation decision-making, and in pets as well. She's a brilliant researcher, and we look forward to talking with her then. Thanks, everybody, and we we'll hope to see you tomorrow.